An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're very pleased to welcome our special guest, Fiona Reynolds. Fiona is CEO of Connexus, a global media and events company focused on the finance industry. Until the end of 2021, Fiona was CEO of Principles for Responsible Investment, the largest network of investors in the world, with some 4,000 signatories who invest an aggregate of $121 trillion in assets under management. To put that in context, when Fiona joined PRI in 2013, there were only 1,000 signatories and some $34 trillion in assets. Sustainable finance has gone mainstream on Fiona's watch. And while no one person is responsible for that, Fiona certainly helped and accelerated the dynamic. Prior to joining PRI, Fiona was CEO of the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, or AIST. AIST educates and represents the trustees of Australia's pension funds. We don't have the equivalent to the U.S., but imagine if the trustees of defined benefit plans and 401k, 403b, and 457 plans were members of and represented by a single organization. In addition to her current role at Connexus, Fiona also serves on the boards of, let me take a breath, the UN Global Compact, the Council of the International Integrated Reporting Council, the Global Advisory Council on Stranded Assets at Oxford University, the UN Business for Peace Steering Committee, the Steering Committee for Investors on Climate Change, Climate Action 100, and the Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking Global Committee. Clearly, she's indefatigable. Welcome, Fiona. Thank you for that very kind introduction, John, and it's really good to talk to you again. Our pleasure. Let's start at the beginning. What's your origin story? Interesting people we find have often had interesting lives, and I know you had an unconventional start to your professional career. So how did you become the person you are today? Well, that's a good question. How did I become the person I am today? Well, um, on a long journey, I think. So I would say that I probably did have quite an unconventional conventional start to my life. I went to, you know, an all-girl Catholic school all of my life. And there were some good things about this and there were some bad things about this. One of the bad things about this was that we were never taught about contraception. And I found myself actually pregnant in my last year of high school. So I had my first child when I was 17 years old. And then I decided after that to, that I would um, get married and that I'd already had a child and I may as well have a couple more because I wanted more. So by the time I was 21, I had three children, which is quite strange today and it was quite strange back then. So in terms of my career, I think I didn't really have any idea about what I wanted to do, but I needed a job to pay for this growing family. And I ended up 
quite by accident, really, working in the superannuation industry in Australia. So superannuation was introduced to Australia in 1992. Before then, most average workers would retire on what was a fairly average age pension. It was only if you worked in the public sector or if you worked in, you know, a big corporate at a very senior level that you had any sort of private pension paid for by your employer. And I started working in the superannuation industry in 1994. And I turned up at the ACTU, which is the Australian Council of Trade Unions, replying to a job ad for someone to sort of coordinate uh, conferences, do some education sort of side of things around superannuation. And I sort of turned up there and thought, I wonder what unions have actually got to do with superannuation, of course, not, not, not really knowing the industrial history of superannuation in Australia. And it was a new industry, like I said. Uh, 1992 was when the superannuation guarantee came in and the rest, as they say, is history. One thing that I did know when I went for um, this job was that I already loved superannuation. I thought, wow, someone's actually going to put money into an account with my name on it and I can't get at it until I retire. Like what a fantastic thing because I couldn't even save five cents in those days. So I just thought it was just such a, a brilliant thing. And of course it is um, a brilliant thing. And nowadays I have an account sitting there with over half a million dollars sitting in it with my name on it because someone bought this in as a fantastic public policy. We're going to get back to that in a second, but I want to ask a little bit about what you're doing at Connexus. Um, when you joined as CEO, you said your focus would be on, and I quote, how do we really build a financial system that works for the many, not the few? So, end quote. So let's level set. On a scale of one to 10, where are we today on having that type of financial system? And which countries do you think get it more right than others? Well, I'd say that it does vary a lot between countries. So maybe I'll start at the top. I think the Scandinavian countries, the Dutch, for example, have much fairer systems that really do look at how do we run a country for the majority of people. And if we look at if we look at somewhere like Norway, they also have their sovereign wealth fund that has a responsibility for current and future generations to provide for. And they think far more about the future. And of course when you look at the Scandinavian countries, any research that's done that talks about who are the happiest people in the world and who are the most satisfied people in the world. It's all a Scandinavian country because they have a much more of a social democratic system. I think that, you know, you look at countries like the United States and I'd say it's terrible in terms of the wealth gap between those at the bottom and those at the top. And I think countries like Australia are probably somewhere in the middle whereby we have a pretty decent minimum wage and a pretty decent minimum standard. And we don't have as many people at the top. We've got a big middle, we have a big middle class. But in the time that I've been away, I think that's also changed. So I think there's a lot more that needs to be, um, needs to be done and that we do have growing inequality around the world. And that, of course, doesn't even touch on, I've only touched on developed countries, not developing countries where the situations are much worse. So I think that they're, 
needs to be a lot more um, done. And one of the things that, one of the reasons that I love working in the finance sector is how do you bring about change in that sector? I don't think the finance sector should be here just to um, cream off a whole lot of money for the benefit of, you know, some wealth, some, some fund managers at the top or some corporations. I think that it needs to be about, particularly as, as we have growing pension systems that are a huge part of the money in that financial system, we need to make sure that that money that is actually our money works for most of us not works for providing, you know, really huge salaries and bonuses to a few people. And I think there was too much of that if we look back to the 80s and et cetera. So Connexus defines itself as a global influencer. Given what you just said, how are you going to use that influence to change the global financial system to become more equitable? What tools do you think you have at your disposal? Then how will you use them? When I worked in the superannuation industry, this was my focus. How did we build a retirement system that worked for most people and built wealth for um, the average worker in Australia? It, when I worked with the PRI, to me, that was an extension of that. How did we make sure that with the money that was being invested that was our money, uh, that that money was invested in a way that took into consideration the world that we, we, we wanted to retire into? No use um, having a big pile of money if the, you know, if you can't breathe the air and the social fabric fabric in every country is broken down. And so I see the work at um, Connexus as a continuation of that. We do have a media, a staple of media that deals with the financial services industry. So how do we hold the industry to account? How do we make sure that we write about issues and educate people? in the industry about important topics, even if they're not necessarily the ones that they want to hear about. And we try to bring the industry together with good thought leaders from around the world as well, within conferences that we do, within sessions we, we put on um, to talk about important topics and try to come up with solutions. As you said in your introduction, there's no one person there's no one organisation who can solve these problems. But I do think if, that if we bring the private sector together, if we bring the finance sector together, we can come up with solutions. So let me talk about one issue that I know is near and dear to your plan. We've mentioned the superannuation funds. Um, for those of you not familiar with that term, um, Australia moved sort of to a defined contribution system um, there are differences from the U.S. and elsewhere, but one can think of it as a um, supercharged defined contribution system. One thing that isn't different, however, is that because of that, there's a linkage to compensation from work. And that generally means that women are disadvantaged twice. First, they generally earn less than men. And second, they spend fewer years in the workforce due to breaks for generally childbirth and generally although not always they are the primary caregivers. And yet they live longer than men, meaning they actually need more resources for retirement. I know this is something you're passionate about. We've made progress on gender equality in some areas, but I'm not sure this is one of them. Is this something you plan to focus on? What can, you, what can be done? Um, absolutely. I focused on this in my whole, my whole career, and I'm going to continue to focus on, on it. 
I really do think that it has to be done at a public policy level. We have to recognise the different ways that women work. And for example, in Australia, in the um, paid parental leave system that the government pays, for some reason you don't have to pay superannuation on that leave. You do on all other kinds of leave, but not on not on maternity leave. So that's something that could, could be fixed. But basically, there needs to be some sort of top-up payment for um, particularly women who are at um, the lower end of the of the of work. And before I left Australia, this is something that I'd advocated for a lot. And the Labor government did bring bring in a top-up system, but unfortunately, a conservative government government then came in and got rid of it. Um, I think employers could think about it in terms of uh, things that they could do, make extra contributions for women, for example, make sure that they're paying women when they're, when they're out on carers' leave and things like that, paying their, their superannuation. But that would then still only help some women and probably mainly ones that worked in very large businesses rather than small businesses. So I think it has to be through a government payment. And the other issue is we need to continue to fight for better pay for women. It's still a fact in many countries around the world that women get paid less than men. Now, not legally, not at that point where, you know, if you're on a minimum wage job and I go to work and you go to work, John, in a minimum wage job, we'll both get same, you know, paid the same if we work in the same you know, retail store or something. But as you move up the ranks into different organisations, any research will say that women don't get paid the same as men. Let's talk about something positive that has happened. As we've both remarked, um, responsible investing has gone from a burgeoning field to just absolute mainstream. Why and why now? You and I have both been in this field for decades. Why did the last few years bring this gigantic inflection point? I think there's a few things. First of all, I think that um, really, I always start it from the point of responsible investment with the asset owners because the asset owners have the money they, in many cases, send the money out to managers. So the weight of asset owners who started to think about responsible investment got larger. There was more pressure on there than on managers. So, you know, up or down the chain, whichever way you want to see it. Also, the weight of money in global pension funds around the world has continued to grow and grow and grow. So there's been more capital in the uh, sort of institutional asset owners and they've had more power and started to use it. So that's one side of it. I think the other, I really saw a change with the Paris Agreement. So when the Paris Agreement came into being in 2015, it was then the first time that there was at least, not perfect, but at least there was some global agreement on climate change about the direction that we were, that we were heading and that we needed to keep under two degrees. I think this did catalyze the finance, the finance sector as well and business. Uh, I think the SDGs helped as well. Um, and then again, you know, a really, I think the SDGs set out sort of a really good global business plan about all of the issues that the world needs to solve for. 
And then I think finally, I do think that the pandemic helped. I think that anyone who didn't understand that you really needed to balance people, profit and planet, that you couldn't have, you weren't going to have a healthy economy if you didn't have healthy people and a healthy planet, that the three must be in sync. I think that the penny finally dropped during the pan the pandemic. And so I think all of these things have meant that um, we've seen a rise in responsible investment. You mentioned which the is SD a good thing. You mentioned the SDGs, which are the Sustainable Development Goals from the United Nations. Um, they were not intended for the finance industry. They were intended for governments. And I would ask whether or not, in fact, amidst all those good things, a bad thing also sparked this growth, which was sort of the abdication by governments of moving towards responsible climate initiatives, of combating gender diversity, of combating antimicrobial resistance, of, you know, the, the litany of things that people are now looking at, that investors are looking at, and whether or not investors didn't look at this and say, if we only rely on government, and not that government does a role to play, government has a huge role to play, um, but if we only rely on government, we're not going to get to the SDGs in any sort of reasonable way, and we'd better start taking some action. Do you think it was also the absence of governmental initiative to actually change society? I do. Well, in some countries, yes. I actually worry a little bit that governments are even uh, are more and more pushing all of this onto the private sector when you know it's your it's your it's your problem to solve not our problem to solve now of course the private sector have a um a role to play of course they do but governments also need to set clear direction they need to make sure that the right policies regulations and frameworks are in place for the private sector to be able to um, deploy capital. And I'm not sure that they, that, they, that they do that. And I also think, and I always say to the private sector at the same time, you can't sit around waiting for governments to act. Because if I look in Australia, our government timetable is three years before a new election. So um, governments come and go and they're not here for the long term. And they're not always looking at long-term issues. Whereas if I'm a pension fund investing money for a multi-generational group of people, I do have to think about the long-term. If I'm a big business, I want to be around in 20 years, 30, you know, 30 years. I want to be around for the long-term. It doesn't always line up governments and private sector um, thinking. So we need to advocate for government to think long-term, but we just can't sit around waiting for them to have the answers that's not going to happen. So what now for responsible investing? Uh, I'm personally seeing paradoxes all over. There is a huge backlash, even as more investors adopt some form of sustainable investing. Um, there's confusion about what responsible investing or sustainable investing or ESG means, even as more and more people say they do it. There are Every asset manager is hiring ESG experts. 
even when there aren't enough to go around, you know, the joke that the only thing faster than the speed of light is an instant ESG expert. <laughs> Greenwashing is prominent, even as we do progress somewhat towards a lower carbon economy. To me, the big picture that everyone focuses on, oh, there's more and more money going into responsible investing. This is a heck of a lot of nuance. What are you seeing? Well, I suppose what's happening with responsible investment now is what I call sort of the financialization of responsible investment. So responsible investment has grown, but that doesn't mean that um, it's a sophisticated industry and it doesn't mean that you have all the tools and the standards in place that are in place for mainstream finance. And that's happening now. And I, but I caution that there's some positives about that, but I also worry that there's some negatives. So people say they want standardization. You talked about terminology. So um, we want to have a taxonomy of terminology in the way that we, in the way that we all know that we're, what we're talking about or that what's on the label of this fund is what's, you know, under the hood, basically. All of those sorts of things. I can see some of those things can be can be a good thing, but I also worry that we'll end up being a bit tick boxing. And I don't think that's what responsible investment actually is. So I don't know where the industry is going to go go next. Uh, it's going to be interesting to sit back and watch and see what happens. But I do have some concerns, you know, I don't know, maybe this is unfair. But when the mainstream comes in and starts taking it over, I, I you know, I don't, I don't know whether the whole ethos and ethics of responsible investment and what was trying to be done in the beginning will survive. So mid the eight years of your life you gave to PRI, what's the one accomplishment that made you happiest? Not necessarily the most impactful, but which made you happiest? I think seeing investors act on climate. So one of the things that I did when I was at the PRI was, uh, well, a long time ago now, we introduced the Montreal Carbon Pledge. And this was to get investors to measure their carbon footprint. So this was a long, you know, a long time ago. From there, once they'd measured their carbon footprint and they knew what it was, they had to take action. And so there are a lot of climate action spurred from that. And then we've now seen um, a lot of investors. We created the... Uh, Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance, where a lot of asset owners have committed to 2050, but net zero, but have also importantly made 2025 targets and they have to ratchet them up. So that climate act that I'm really pr proud of. I just add another thing that I was proud of. Uh, I watched some really great young people come into the PRI and have gone on to do really good things. So that was also really satisfying uh, as well. What's the weirdest thing that happened during your tenure there? <laughs> the weirdest thing? Oh, well, one of the weirdest, I suppose, uh, weirdest things. Well, I had this group of, um, you talk about the Danish funds leaving. Okay, that was fine. We could deal with that. We knew what their, we knew what their issue was. But we had this group of fund managers that were from the UK and they really decided that they were going to throw their weight around. I, but I wasn't really listening to them enough because I come, came much from a more from an asset owner background. And as far as I'm, I'm always being concerned, 
you've got to catalyse the asset owners. The managers will do what they're mandated to do at the end of the day. And I, I still feel very strongly about that. That doesn't mean there's not great managers out there. So they, they sort of all banded together and had decided that they were going to have a bit of a revolution at the PRI. They were going to stand someone from the board that, um, you know, I didn't know what I was doing, basically, that they didn't like the strategy that we had in place. And um, I don't know, they're going to have a bit of a coup, I think. Well, you can see that they didn't succeed and that uh, I think I left the PRI in better shape than I found it. You're not going to tell us any details of the coup and how it was defeated? In the coup, they decided to stand someone from the board. That person got elected. But I think that person, when they came in to the PRI and actually sat on the board and got to understand the organisation and what we were doing, became a huge advocate for the PRI. And at the end of the day, I think some of their clients were not very happy about the actions they were taking as well. Some of their asset owner clients were not very happy with them. And so there was a little bit of that as well. And so it all died down um, over, over the years. And that, you know, again, coming back to being true to your mission, well, this was the strategy that we had in place after a large consultation with signatories across the world. And you might be 10 very big and important fund managers, but you're not, you're not the only signatories the PRI has. So here's the strategy. You can continue to be part of the PRI or if you don't like the strategy, then that is your choice not to be part of the PRI. None of them left, by the way. So you're in this new role. You're back home. What's exciting you right now? What are you passionate about? I suppose I've got two great passions, really. Underlying all of this is that I don't work in the finance sector because I think the finance sector is the greatest se sector to work in in the world. I think if you want to change the world, you have to follow the money, right? And the money in the finance sector just keeps getting bigger and bigger. So I think finance is the catalyst for change. And within that, I really are, oh, I suppose, my passions are human rights or human, human rights, but within that, how, workers' rights and how do we make the financial system work for for the people whose money it is. And then, of course, how do we bring the finance sector into climate solutions as well? And they're going to be the things that I continue to focus on. Let's finish with some quick questions and answers. How do you relax? I'm one of those people who, because the things that I like working on sort of works my passion as well, these are these issues. So um, I'm, not, I'm not a very good relaxer. If I do relax, it's, I like, I do like a glass of red wine and it'll be, you know, sitting down, watching Netflix or reading a book, you know, that, that, that will be how I relax. So what are you reading right now? Well, I just picked up a, a book at the airport yesterday, actually, that was called Seamstress of Sardinia. So it is set at the beginning of the 20th century and it's about a young girl, poor young girl who basically is making clothes for wealthy fat for a wealthy family she's you know in a very male dominated world and she has great she has you know great hopes for um a, a society that will be more accepting for women and where people from from poor backgrounds can hope for a better future and that's what it's that basically about very consistent what music do you listen to I'm a bit tragic, people tell me, when it comes to music. I, I am a really, like, 80s rock person. What type of artist would you say 80s rock? 
I really like, you know, um, Guns and Roses. I like the Eagles. I like um, uh, anything, any sort of thing from that era, Fleetwood Mac. Some of these are 70s, 80s, you know. Um, so, yeah, I don't think that I've found many good, many good artists that have come into being. <laughs> no no Australian bands from that era. Oh, I love Australian. I love Australian music. So I love, you know, in, in excess, Crowded House, um, Cold Chisel. Some people will know some of these bands. Some some people, Australian music is actually, I, I think it's fantastic and I love it. If you could be on vacation now, I mean, you've traveled the world, where would you be? Oh, yes. Look, I'd be on the Amalfi Coast in Italy with the Mediterranean. Last question. If you could magically talk into the ear of everyone in the world, what would you tell them? I would say that um, we need to, we need to think long term and we need to look after the planet that we have, and we all have a role to play in looking after the planet. You've been listening to Outside In with our special guest Fiona Reynolds. Almost fifteen years ago, the Sydney Australia Morning Record wrote a profile of Fiona. At the time, she said. There's something worse than failure, and that's irrelevance. You've got to keep trying things. She certainly does that. For many, PRI would be the capstone to a career, but Fiona keeps trying things, including now being CEO of Conexus. I suspect she would be relevant and influential for many more years. Thank you, Fiona. Thanks, John. It's been great to talk to you. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukomnik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor O'Higgisa, John Lukomnik executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.